Okay. Now I'm gonna sink us. <laughs> I think we're I think we're off and running here. We are. Uh, so let me introduce um, myself and uh, what and let everyone know what's what's happening here. My name is Traven Rice, and I am the co-founder and uh, arts and culture editor and publisher of The Lowdown, Lower East Side News, Arts and Culture, and we've been around uh, documenting the Lower East Side and reporting on it and covering the people and the art, artists, arts and culture and uh, politics and real estate and food and on and on. But we are starting this podcast um, specifically to focus on culture and what I'm interested in highlighting is uh, culture shifts, culture changers, people who've been also um, contributing to the culture on the Lower East Side. Uh, and I have with me somebody who's been doing that for a very long time, mm. who could talk about the culture of the Lower East Side like almost no other, I would say, Clayton Patterson. Uh, thank you, yes. Uh, the Lowdown. I remember when The Lowdown got started. It was great. Actually, it's um, still out there as w because most of the uh, media, we've lost recording and uh, covering the neighborhood. And really, uh, The Lowdown is, in this our part of town, is really the last of the, of the one standing. Mm -hmm. And we still have The Village Sun, which covers a wider uh, spectrum. But we're lucky to have The Lowdown because it covers so much of, uh, of where we are. Yeah, and which is very low, very low down, very lower, low down. lower, lower east side. Yes, <laughs> so uh, that's a, that's a bonus. So thank you for that. Of course. And uh, yeah, off we go. Yeah, so um, you've been on Essex for a very long time. You know, I saw um, the New Yorker recently featured mm -hmm. your your photos and and featured you, and they dubbed you. I think you might have dubbed yourself this, but officially the Lower East Side's folk historian. Do you like that title? Uh, that's fine. I mean, you know, Bourdain called me the godfather of Lower East Side and archive of everything that is. But no, yeah, it's fine. Whatever. It's all good. <laughs> as, as far as, as long as one keeps on doing it, then that's what counts. Yeah, but I would say that going way back um, when you first arrived, you, you've been documenting and photographing, I would say, counterculture. Would you say that? Outsiders? Yeah. Outsider, okay. counterculture, underground, and also just part of the regular Lower East Side, like part of what the New Yorker was about was my front door pictures. Mm -hmm. And I've been doing those now almost for 40 years. So that means that there's, uh, you know, from kids, young kids, to now some of them have grandkids. And when you say front door, you mean literally the front, literally front door, door. Of, uh, your, of your- Of where I live. Or where you live, on and Essex so Street. Everything that happened in and around those pictures was on the street because it's in front of the door. How did that get started? Um, <clears throat> gee, back, this was probably about 86 when I started that. And I uh, just realized that I could start covering the neighborhood in a way that's difficult to get to. Like, part of what I have is a very large, in the front door collection, is a very large uh, Hispanic and mostly Puerto Rican. Mm -hmm. By the time you got into the late 80s, it started shifting over to Dominican. And so there isn't really a, a substantial history of that on the Lower East Side. And so to have a real people's history, it's, um, it's yeah. kind of, you know, I'm, I'm very proud of that. But so, were they just the kids that were hanging out on the block? Well, that's an interesting point, because <clears throat> the Lower East Side used to be about streets and being on the streets. 
And so there were two factors to this. There was the front door, which people could graffiti, and then there was the, I put up a wall, at that time a, a set of like 32 pictures, uh, three and a half by five, which I would change every week or two. And so it became a real go-to spot for people to go. And so the thing of it is, is that I captured a lot of youth that wouldn't normally be captured because they were like street dealers, you know, posses, gangs, crews, whatever. A lot of, you know, stay-at-home kids and like that as well. But to get access to those kind of people over a large period of time is really amazing. Like, I've known, like, you know, then you get to familiar with like the Rainbow Posse and Dog Pound and some of those other crews that were on Lower Side. And some of them were definitely dangerous. And it's almost like, because one was sort of uh, kind, showed him a little love and respect, uh, you get that back. So even years later, I mean, I've had people come out of jail after 20 years and come by, take another picture. <laughs> and it's, in a way, it's almost like being a father to so many of those people because they didn't really have an adult that they could sort of relate to in that way. Yeah. So I'm happy to have provided uh, that uh, opportunity. But yeah, that was just, um, was really amazing. And so, but I have this huge archive now, which is, you know, tens of thousands of pictures and a few thousand hours of videos. And what I'm trying to do now is to digitize it all mm -hmm. and then uh, preserve it. What I'd like to do is Essex Crossing, the, the new building there, they have a lot of extra space in there. What I'm trying to do is find somebody that is an owner of high up in that company to see if I could get space, maybe 3,000 square feet to empty out my place, put it in there, start to uh, organize it and archive it, and then you know construct the, the inside of my space into a museum or foundation, then move okay. all the stuff back. Ah. But in order to do that, you know, so I kind of like taking a box of chocolates that's all sort of been you know, smudged around, and then you need to put it back in order. Mm -hmm. And so in order to put it back in order, and that would be like kind of my big gift to the Lower East Side, would be that, um, and it contains a lot of culture that really doesn't exist anywhere. I think that's an understatement. A lot of culture that has been documented, right? Yeah, a lot of underground culture. Culture that, you know, I was never really interested in the Patti Smiths or like that kind of thing because they have enough media and attention. They don't need my attention. So I was going more for the people that were outside. Yeah. You were always, always interested in the people that maybe, yeah, like you said, weren't getting attention. Yeah, or the forgotten ones, or the ones that uh, you know don't typically get attention, and that's a lot of times where you find really in the obscure people, the really interesting people, and the mm -hmm. geniuses, and the people that are outside. Mm -hmm. You know, like a place like the Lower East Side, there's um, you know people come here and they sort of develop a talent like a Madonna, mm -hmm. but Madonna really got all of her skills and ideas and dress and all from people on the Lower East Side. Now she goes on and becomes Madonna, but you don't really know who turned on the lights. Right. And I'm interested in who turned on the lights and who turned her on and who, who kind of opened up her uh, head. Sure, it's like how things trickle in, right, from the outside and then yeah. come in, become the mainstream. Become the mainstream, that's But what right. are they initially is the interest, right? Yeah, and a lot of the really inspiring people are just too much for the mainstream. You know, they have to be watered down, they have to be coiffed, they have to be gentrified. And so those wild cards generally are overlooked, but they're really the ones that made it happen. Yeah. So I know you spent a lot of time um, at CBGB's documenting mm -hmm. those early days of those punk shows. Um, I know you spent a lot of time. Then there's a, like an activist slant where you're on the streets yes. at a lot of protests as right. well. That's true. Right? Got arrested a bunch of times, you know, knocked out, knocked out, knocked unconscious, teeth knocked out. But... Um, 
See, that's another thing is, is like history because that, hit, you know, that went on for four years in the Lower East Side, which took hundreds of arrests. You know, they brought in the big birth of the tank, uh, evictions. You mean you're talking about Tompkins Square? No, I'm talking Over about the where? whole, above uh, Houston. Yeah. I mean, there was a lot of street protests that went on for several years. Yeah. There was a homeless in the park, but there's no real record of that. Mm -hmm. And then the other thing that happens is, like in the New York Times after the 1988 riot, they called it a melee. Now, a melee is a softer word than a riot. Mm -hmm. And a melee can also indicate, you know, hand-to-hand -hand fighting on the street. Well, big protests can be like that. But the mayor and the police commissioner, the highest ranking officials in the city, they without question called it a police riot. Mm -hmm. And even after Koch retired, if you can go on YouTube, he still calls it a police riot. Mm -hmm. Well, the police now, as history uh, goes on, they're moving it down to an incident. Mm -hmm. And that's how you eventually change history. Right. And Lower East Side being, you know, more kind of like a poor neighborhood, all of that history is missing. Yeah, yeah. And it's really unfortunate. And four solid years of protests. Yeah. That's a lot. And so you just you just decided early on, wherever you knew that some of this action was was happening, oh. that you would go? No, what was happening is I was documenting the Pyramid Club. Okay. And like this was a Sunday night, and I used to document this person called uh, Peter Huelov, San PK. And I was going up to the pyramid that night, and um, actually we had a car at that time. We bought a car at a, at a police auction for 25 bucks, and actually got us out west and back. But we had that car, and Elsa and I were coming back from um, uptown, and all of a sudden we saw all this police activity going to Tompkins Square Park. So we parked the car, and Elsa came with me. She usually does these things, you know, when I documented events and that. And then that became known as the Tompkins Square Park Police Riot. Okay. And that's what turned me on to the whole activism. That threw me right in the middle of it because in the beginning, they wanted to. Uh, they knew they found out I had a tape, so anyway, I got uh, the DA wanted the tape and I didn't want to give it to him, so I got um, nailed for uh, contempt of court. A videotape, right? A videotape. Okay. And so I didn't want to give it up, and the whole point with the videotape was I know that once it becomes gov uh, evidence, it becomes government property. Mm -hmm. So the whole beginning art. That's why I didn't take a lawyer in the beginning because I wanted to establish the argument. And basically, I'm an artist. This is my art and it belongs to me. And in the end, the court accepted that, the DA accepted that. So they took a first generation copy. Normally they want the best evidence possible. Mm -hmm. So I was able to do that, which was a big deal. So I kept that, um, the whole thing intact, three hours and 33 minutes. But Elsa was as much part of that as, as, as I was. I mean, mm -hmm. I couldn't have done it without her. You were both kind of team, tag teaming and, 100%. and documenting together. Yeah, it's, yeah, if you watch Captured, there's a movie called Captured um, by Dan uh, Levin and Ben Solomon and kind of goes through a lot of this history. And in that, Elsa says, we are Clayton. And I was kind of like the big noisy one up front, and she was <laughs> a quiet one in behind. Yeah. But she was as important as I am in any of those things. Well, and I've, I'm very aware she's also as important with um, the lovely example of what you're wearing right now. Absolutely, the Clayton the cap. So. Yes. That was a beginning of a lot for you, wasn't it? It really was. And it is, now I'm trying to save the archive. I'm trying to get the cap placed in uh, like the uh, Metropolitan uh, Museum of Fashion. And I'll tell you why. Because the baseball cap became a fashion item, no question. And right. when we started in 1986, it was a Yankees cap. It was rednecks, you know, diesel power, rednecks and uh, sports people, and that was it. <laughs> And so I was going down Avenue A, and you see, this is pre-gentrification, which is really important. And this goes back to Madonna or whoever. 
when you were here, there were so many opportunities where you could learn, where you could manufacture something or make something, because there was all these small independent shops. Mm-hmm. And there was this one guy called Ben Booksinger on about 12th and Avenue A, and he made baseball caps. So I went in there and said, oh, wow, can you make me a baseball cap? He said, yeah, no problem, like two bucks or something. So can I have a black top and an orange shirt? Yeah, no problem. So I got the first cap, and then I went back to get another one, and I realized he was doing jacket backs for the Savage Skull, so he could draw with it. So I asked him if he could draw a picture going all the way around, and it was, he was a bit resistant to that because it was a goofy idea. But well, he what's had, the Savage Skull? The ba- uh, oh, that's a street gang from the Lower East Side. A gang? A gang. He was doing jackets for them? Uh, jacket backs, yeah. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. So then what happened is, is that um, I got him to design the first cap, and he was like, older, and he was retiring. So this was the, you know, the first term of college, the garment industry was number one, third term it was finished. So around 1986, it's the middle, and this was when all the outsourcing was taking place. Mm-hmm. So all of those, like on Broadway and Soho, there are a lot of cap manufacturing in that over there. Mm-hmm. So they were all going overseas. So you couldn't get caps, baseball caps made in America, really. It was much more difficult then. And so Elsa had grown up with her sister, and she was always into sewing and hobbies and stuff like that. So she took to the sewing machines. We should clarify that Elsa's your wife. Yeah. Partner. Uh, well, we were partners for years. We weren't really interested in getting married. We've been together for 50 years, but kind of as you get older. and Partner in crime. Yes. <laughs> in, in order to become more legitimate, we got married. <laughs> but it had nothing okay. to do with a uh, love affair. <laughs> so anyway, we made the first Clayton uh, cap. with. We were the first people to uh, put uh, embroidery going around the cap. That was a change. First one to do custom caps. We made a lot of custom caps where you could come in, you have a choice of six drawings, you make six different drawings. Still, nobody does that. And soon we started getting, you know, people like Matt Dillon, every time he made a movie, we would make him a cap. Uh, how did that start? Um, well, he was, you know, Lower East Side used to be very open, and a lot of different people used to come down here. And then he became aware of the cap, so he came down to us and ordered caps over the years. Tom Ginsberg, the guy that owned Viking Press, he used to come down and get caps all the time. So we had a lot of people that were, you know, George Adams from the Adams Gallery. He came. So we had a lot of high-end customers as well. I made a jacket back for Mick Jagger when he was on tour in Australia. So we brought it up to a, a whole higher, I don't want to call it a higher class, but into a much more of a fashion item rather yeah. than just a, a sports and item. They took off. And they took off. That's great. And I feel like I have a big gap missing in, in my wardrobe, Clayton. Yes. <laughs> I'm sure you do. We'll, figure, we'll work that out. Yes, we do. So that's a great story. I love the caps. And, and so they, yeah. I read that you said that they really helped you both um, do what you wanted to do creatively because it was a bit of a way you could make some money. Well, it's an interesting that you bring that up. Um, in the beginning, I, I had this landlord, Saul Freed, and we had this. We were living at 325 Broom Street. That was the same uh, building that Keith Haring uh, lived in. We, this was starting like 79. Then I sort of built it out with, uh, made too much art, we had to move. Saul had a larger space, which was 3,500 square feet. So he said, Clayton, you know, after, we, we were allowed to sublet our place for two years. And after two years, like he said, this, the rent's gonna go up in it because it's commercial space. You have to be aware of that, so he warned me. So we had a year, we looked around, we had figured we have to buy something. Mm-hmm. This is like 82. Mm-hmm. So we spent a year looking around and we found this two-story building on Essex Street that had a factory on the first floor. Uh, making Dominicans making uh, dresses for kids and the, and the woman in the front made wedding dresses. So we went to 42 banks and couldn't get a mortgage. And then they also said to me, look, 
you stay home, I'm gonna go up to the president of Citibank, and we're gonna figure this out. Mm-hmm. Now you have to remember, this is early 80s, so if you try to go to Citibank now, you can't get past the front desk. Right. At that point, you could. So she made it up to the vice president, and she talked to the secretary. Well, you know, if you're talking to the secretary, it's like talking to the guy's wife. I mean, you know, you're yes. gonna get the information. You're you know? talking to the one who's really in charge. Talking to the one that's really in charge. <laughs> the one that's got his ear for sure. So they called, we got a call that night and uh, you know spoke to the guy and explained that the first floor would pay the mortgage, so we didn't have a stable income, but that was stable. And uh, we got the mortgage. And then, so we were basically living there with the, uh, the renters paying the uh, mortgage. So then once we started doing the caps, um, that gave us our expenses. Mm-hmm. So we didn't, you know, we don't need a lot you know, it's not like we're driving the pink Cadillac or going to even the plaza or whatever. We live a very minimal lifestyle, yeah. so it was perfect for us. Yeah. And so you were just out sort of on the streets, kind of in the middle of it all. Yeah. Could go at any time we wanted because we could make the caps. And then eventually we had the little storefront in the front, which we made the, mm-hmm. the cap store. And then you could just decide what you wanted to go take pictures of or focus on. Exactly. Or, right? Yeah. So, okay, so you've seen a lot of changes in a the lot neighborhood. Of changes. Yes. I'm sure it's been up and down. Well, I could never be me again, and that's important for people to realize. What do you mean? Well, it just wouldn't. This hyper gentrification and this taking over by the international corporations has really killed a lot of small independent uh, uh, possibilities. You know, all the little stores, the bodegas are disappearing down here. All the little fashion shops, all the little independent stores, they can't survive here anymore. Mm-hmm. So the fact that, or get a building or get any of those things, it's just too much. Too expensive. Too expensive. So we were blessed to come here at that time and be able to do that. But other than that, so, but the game changes and I'm still here, so you have to find out how to stay in the game. Mm-hmm. So that's what I'm doing now. And so part of it, in order, another part of preserving the archive is to do books. So I've done a lot of books now, like Street Gangs of Lower East Side, Front Door Book, uh, you know, uh, Resistance Radical Political History Book, Catcher. Just finished a, a New York uh, tattoo history. These are anthologies, so a lot of people uh, contribute them. Mm-hmm. And like the Lower East Side Jewish History Book is three volumes, and it has just a lot of different um, authors, because I didn't want it to all to be my opinion. So you just decide you're going to gather this information from yes. as many sources as you as can. As many as I can. And you, it's a very, it's a pretty inclusive um, yeah. and expansive collection. Of well, people. the thing that you don't, a lot of people don't realize about the Jewish community is it's very divided. Mm. You know, you got Zionists, anti-Zionists, you got communists, atheists, capitalists. You have all of these, and generally in each of those areas, you have leading people. Yeah. Um, so, um, in order to give a full view of the Jewish history, Lower East Side, you have to try to get something from everybody. <laughs> so we get people like Judith Nalina from the Living Theater, yeah, and that's a radical anarchist theater. Yeah, um, you know we had just you know people writing about their rabbi father or you know just a lot of different people. Um, yeah, it's just a whole wide cross section: artists, poets, writers, and it's kind of divided. Like the first volume is kind of below Delancey because there used to be that whole thing about crossing Delancey. Yeah, yeah, and so um, did the. Uh, so that was volume one, and then it goes up from there. But yeah, it, it's a pretty, the issue was in doing all of this stuff, there's no big money. Right. And the other thing is, you can't really find publishers. Right. I mean, finding a publisher is hard. Harder it, and it, harder, it's right? It's harder and harder, and it's, yeah. it's just a lot of work. So in that case, I just published it myself. Mm-hmm. 
But you definitely, it feels to me like you really have become a cultural historian and documentarian. Yeah, people would throw in folk because that kind of puts it into a, a level that's non-academic in a way. Mm-hmm. Although there's a lot of academics in the book. Mm-hmm. But, um, so since I was doing it on the, you know, just with figuring out how to do it myself, I had a woman from Random House that was designing it. And in the end, it turned out she put 10 point type. So it's very <laughs> hard to read. And I couldn't change it because, you know, even though computers are amazing, when you, um, to change the fonts and yeah. stuff, so it, it's like, just throwing dominoes and kicking them all right, over. Right, because it had already been formatted. Yes. Oh. And then it's, the commas change, the words change, the sentences, <laughs> paragraphs, everything. So I left it at 10 point. I'm hoping that, you know, as the future uh, makes things more accessible, that somehow I'll be able to get that book into a more public place. Yeah, maybe digitize it, right? Yeah. Maybe? Yeah, you digitize it, yeah. Yeah? So, okay, as you, you were sort of just meeting people um, on the streets and at arts events and at all of these different protests and shows. Um, how did you? How did it come about that you decided to start the Acker Awards? Well, that time I was working with somebody in San Francisco and they were very interested in doing this. And I was interested in um, honoring the avant-garde, which is also outside. Mm-hmm. And in order to do that, from my perspective, I wanted to have as wide a range as possible. Now, the person I was doing it with in San Francisco, he eventually came to New York, and then it turned out that he had mental issues and whatever. So we were going into the third year, and then he decided, because it was first named after Kathy Acker. And why was that? Because uh, she lived downtown, Lower East Side. She's known as an avant-garde writer. She's really a a prominent writer within her genre Mm -hmm. and well-respected. And so it seemed like she was perfect. Mm because she was also well known, but I would say she wasn't famous. Mm-hmm. Because I'm not interested in famous people, because famous people already have their own machine to take care of who they are. Mm-hmm. You could be well known in the underground, but still not be famous above ground. Right. She sort of teeters on that. And so the, the idea was to sort of put a spotlight on people who were doing avant-garde work that you thought should be recognized? Yes, people that I felt that should be recognized. But also, and this was very different from any other award, that I wanted to have all the people that made the culture happen. So let's say there was people that had like the Sixth Street Garden, let's say. Mm-hmm. Or the, so that allowed people to play music there, to have cultural events. I mean, so it was a cultural thing as well. And a lot of artists were in there. So, and like, let's say Al Orenzatz, because he used to let us use the Orenzatz Center. Mm-hmm. So he was facilitating culture. So also, you know, it could be librarians, it could be publishers, it could be, you know, anybody that helped make the uh, culture possible. Right. Rather than just the culture, just the artist. Right, right. I wanted to have the whole cross-section. Because when you go back to Montmartre or something, you know that Picasso was there and all those people were there. But you don't really know the whole culture. Right. You don't know that Louis down the street ran the bar that all of them went to. Right. So I wanted to give the future the opportunity to research and find these other people. Sort of the facilitators and the people who really yes, helped the, make yes, it possible. Facilitated, exactly. Just like you're doing the radio show now. Yes. That facilitates it. Yes. And so, you know, you, you keep doing that and people will come out of this and you people will be spotlighted and recognized and like that. So that's a very important facilitator. Yeah. So that's the first part. Now the award comes in three parts. So there's a, a bio booklet that I do now, 
which is going into, oh, so after the other split with this person, uh, he got a hold of the foundation and everything. He got to turn it into a real hell show. So I changed the name to the New York Hacker Awards. Okay. Because, you know, I talked to the foundation. They understood. And they said, look, we, resport, we um, you know, support what you do, but the noise around this is just too negative that we have to, you, you can't keep using the name. Oh. So I said, okay. So I changed it to New York Hackers, which then moved her out of the picture, which is unfortunate. But, uh, you know, they have no problem with that, and I'm still in contact with some of those people. And you do that every year still, right? I do it every Well, COVID threw out yeah. a year or whatever. I'm going into the ninth year. Okay. But, so there's a poster. So we have, like, this superwoman um, who's part of the who's a poster. The person that does it has Bronx heroes from the Bronx. Uh, he's a, a Ray Felix, Puerto Rican comic book artist. And he does the posters, which are great. And then we have um, uh, the booklet, you know, I'm trying to encompass all the years of the past and name them. I'd like to do one of a composite with all of the ones. And then we do the box. Now the box is something that everybody has to contribute to who's gonna get a box. So in the box, now I have one person say to me, what, you're giving me an award and I have to give you something to get the award. <laughs> That's right, you do. Because in that box, it contains objects that define who you are. So let's say you're a writer, some people would put in a book. You're a photographer, you'd put in a photograph. Uh -huh. Because as it goes into the future, people won't know who they are or what they did. Right. So if you actually op open this box, everybody gets a box. There's 40 boxes. So everybody that gets an award that contributes gets a box. So that means that you have something that relates to all the other people. So nice. now you know. It's like time capsule, too. It's like a time capsule. Very nice. Yeah. And so it becomes, yeah, it becomes like a, your own personal time capsule. That's really cool. Yeah. Very and, cool. Yeah, so that was the idea behind it. So it's also an archive. Yeah. You know, and um, so you get to know what all the other people were doing. The person's yeah. a poet, they'll have a poem in there. and. Very you, nice. Yeah, so that's that idea. That's great. Yeah, so yeah. You, you've got a lot of things still going. It sounds like yeah. you're in the archive phase as far as this collection and what, what can happen to it next as far as all these photos. Yeah, that's a big responsibility. And then, you know, Elsa's, you know, kind of out of the picture right now so it's I have really good people helping me but um, I'm sure it feels like a very big project yeah and I definitely miss her uh, all the time help yeah yeah well I hope we can um, we'll keep following you and see what we can do to help find all some, right some archiving happening and you know you've yeah. had some a good I know there was a show at Abrams Art Center that was yeah, that was great that the was photos front were up, pictures and up that, on the street there yeah that was great and, uh, you know, the new uh, tattoo, uh, New York Tattoo History books. I would actually sell it here in the bookstore. Very good. Oh, yes. Great. Yes. Here at P&T Knitwear. I forgot to say that's where we are. That's right. <laughs> On Orchard Street. Yeah. Okay. All right. Well, this was really nice. It is. I don't know what happened to our video. I was noticing that. It just kind of <laughs> split in a minute. Um, oh, there we are. There We're are. still there. Okay, well, that was really great. All right, well, thank you very much. Thank you, Clayton. All right. You were our... Um, From this time until next time. Our first guest. Unbelievable. Historic. Our number one guest. Number one guest. On the Lowdown Podcast. On the Lowdown Podcast. <laughs> well, this is great. And, yeah. Um, you know, it's interesting with this place, too. I know you want to try to wind it up. But they're uh, opening up to the uh, public. 
you know, like I did the uh, the book signing over here when mm -hmm. I, the Tattoo uh, History book came out, and you're doing the podcasting now. Yeah, it's a community podcast um, yeah. station that they have here, which is wonderful. So this Very is nice. interesting because you, it kind of opens up the community. Because what I'm finding now is the community is rebuilding in the background a little bit. That's good to know. Yeah, and the pieces are coming together. Like this piece is, place is reaching out. Yeah. There are other places like uh, Essex, the new Essex Place, a store on Avenue first on Essex Street mm -hmm. I'm gonna be showing caps there great so it's really just um, I think with a podcast like this mm -hmm. it would be possible to bring to bring like a string of pearls if you can start getting all those independents together and yeah. having them come together sure turn this into like a real community center yeah absolutely absolutely all I think right. that would be great thank you Clayton thank you <laughs> it stopped or no, no we're recording it didn't stop.